Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. So, uh, yeah, you know, when you're in the water for a long time, a bit of body fat massively helps. Um, you know, in this country alone, in Britain, there's something ridiculous like 85% of black ethnic minorities won't have any opportunities to go to a swimming pool. There were, must have been 30 or 40 people on the beach surrounding me, the only person who knew how to do CPR. That's the tragedy of drowning. Everything is going beautifully until it goes wrong. Brendan, how are you, mate? Good to see you, Chris. Fantastic. Thank you, buddy. Yeah, I feel almost guilty that we're um, you actually don't live that far away from me and you could have come here in the studio, but um, hey-ho. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? You don't know these things until you're actually speaking. Yes, and in, in our little chat that we had earlier, we've already established we know some of the same people and the same events, and uh, yeah, incredible. I'm especially around, especially around water. It's it's not the biggest of worlds when water's related. Yes, and you asked me earlier. Um, I said I've got a healthy fear of water. I say healthy, you know. There's, I think it's good to have a bit of a fear. I mean, my my um. My best mate drowned when we were on holiday together. So, um, right, goodness. It, you know, accidents do do happen. Um, and uh, and uh, one of my dive buddies in Antarctica drowned on our very first dive down there. So, yeah, I I I, I take life seriously, and um, I can see. It, I think because I was in the Marines when I was younger, you realise lots of people die. In the Marines, a disproportionate amount of young men die from motorbike accidents. Um, you know, some got killed on a tr surfing on the roof of a train in Thailand. Uh, we lost one of our lads on active service in the Northern Ireland conflict. So, so it's like I'm not overly fearful, but I am aware that it can go wrong in an instant. And and absolutely. Every everything you can do to stay calm and prepare yourself is is vital and you asked me did i have any particular incident yeah i was surfing in uh, nicaragua and um i went out and it was just above my pay grade that the 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 surf swell there was yeah what, what you not what you'd get um like in cornwall north shore of cornwall or something which just tends to be you can get some obviously fantastic waves in Cornwall, but none of them are going to smash you down to the point where you're underwater for like 30 <laughs> seconds at a time, you know? So in Nicaragua, Brendan, I paddled out. And even before I'd got out back, this big wave just comes straight down on me. And I tried to duck dive it and bang as it, as it broke over me, the weight of the wave yeah, yeah it pushed me down so deep that when i tried to swim up all, all i could get was bubbles and I, yeah. I couldn't get any purchase and i was swimming for ages and of course then you start 
it's not just that panic sets in, it's that you almost like have to accept you're going to die. And as I got up on the surface, lo and behold, what's bearing down on me, exactly the same, exactly the same type of wave and bang. And that second time, I'd almost, well, I'd resigned myself to the fact I was going to drown. And when I actually got out of it, it I just sat on the beach. Like, Whoa. Yeah. So, and I've had... Um, it's a common yeah. thing you say. It's, a, it's an amazingly common thing. Um, yeah. and, and thankfully, you're here to be able to tell the tale and, and ward others against it. But, um, you know, we all try and push ourselves, don't we? And, and we want to go that next level up. But you've got to be prepared on so many different levels for water because, it, as you say, can take you in an instant. Yeah, exactly. And diving, that's just a whole, you know, I've had accidents diving, perforated an eardrum, had what I could only describe as a bit of a panic attack when I got caught in a, a, a rip, rip tide, or, you know, the tide was ripping out. Yeah. And, um, and uh, yeah, I'm all, <laughs> so, so I've got a healthy, uh, but yeah, so, and I'm also, as, as I was saying earlier, you know, I didn't really learn to swim properly. Well, obviously I did the, the, the Marines tests and everything that you have to do, but I didn't learn to swim properly till I was about 45. That's when I first took myself to the pool and thought, right, I'm going to crack front crawl properly, not, not just swim a bit and then, you know, be all out of breath. And I started to watch YouTube videos. And uh, over the course of three years, I taught myself to swim well, pretty well. And then on my, um, the, the event that I now know that you in, implement, instigate, in, yeah, I started. started. Yeah, whenever. Yeah, which is the Tor Bay uh, Triathlon. I entered that and I did the Olympic distance, so the mile swim, etc. Came so last that they tried to ask me to leave the race, and I just said, Look, <laughs> "Keep your medal. I'm not stopping." Yeah. My little boy was on the finish line. Sorry, folks. I'm just laying out my table here, so we all know, you know, why I'm fascinated to have Brendan on the show. My little boy's on the finish line going, where's my daddy? Why, <laughs> why, why is everybody else finished? And, and so I came last in my first triathlon. And right there and then I said, I'm going to do a quadruple Ironman in eight weeks time. And so in just, in just <laughs> eight jump. weeks, yeah, in just eight weeks, I improved my swimming enough, my cycling and my running, uh, only by running three miles, uh, a mile around the block in the morning. Um, and the odd, the odd three miler, I should say, but I just improved it enough to do four up a quadruple distance Ironman. Um, for well, sw that. swimming, I mean, well done you, because swimming in middle age, learning like that, it's a bit like trying to learn Welsh at 45. You know, it, it's a hard task to set yourself. So uh, hats off to you for, for, for setting yourself that ultimate challenge and going for a quadruple Ironman, because that, you know, that's up there. <laughs> Ten mile swim. So tell me, Brendan, while we're on that subject, before we obviously come on to your story, because it's your podcast, there's this thing in the Marines, right? You've got to do this test. You jump off the diving board in all your equipment. You sink to the bottom. Then you've got to get up. You've got to swim a length down the pool, swim back with all this kit on. And by that time, um, and then you've got to handle all your kit off and et cetera, et cetera. But the thing was, it was quite well known that the black guys struggled with it because of the... Uh, having less body fat and then of course people 
I'm not going to lift my shirt up, but I've always been quite, quite um, muscular, but, but, but skinny with it. And so when I go to the pool, I'll see these big old dudes and they're just like, <laughs> and they're just cruising along like, like, like whales or something, right? No, and, and, and they're not even like fit dudes or anything. There's me, if I don't keep my stroke up, it progressively becomes harder and harder to breathe to the point where I'm just, I'm just completely, yeah. you know what I mean? It's like a real fine <laughs> balance. What, what is going on there? Would I be better with a bit of body fat? Uh, I mean, you, you broke some, so many different points there. Um, just going back to the, uh, you know, there's, there's been that illusion that black people can't swim. Um, as well as white people or whatever that is that people think. It's more to do with the fact that most black people don't have the opportunities to swim to get to the point. Um, you know, in this country alone, in Britain, there's something ridiculous like 85% of black ethnic minorities won't have any opportunities to go to a swimming pool. So you've got that to contend with because they're perhaps potentially coming to swim in much later in life. And as you find that, it's not an easy thing to come to at later life because it is so, when you swim, it's all about the summation of forces and how you use those summation of forces from the tip of your toe to the tip of your finger whilst trying to breathe. And you add those things together. And, you know, I've, I've swum with people in open water and I consider myself a fairly good open water swimming. And they are five stone overweight and they are a foot shorter than me. And yet, they're swimming next to me and making it look easier than I can. It's all how you use the body in that summation of forces. You know, your breathing, your balance, your head position, your arm action, your leg action, your body position, also crucial. And when you get into the sea, the dynamics change a little bit, can become a little bit easier to compare to the pool. Um, but there's an awful lot there. And, you know, people say to me all the time, what, what thing can I do to improve my swimming? Swim. That's all you can do is swim. Swim as much as you can is the best way of improving your stroke. And then when you get to a level of, you know, I call it the top 5%. That means for you, the top, you're in that top 5% of what you can achieve. Then it's about tweaking your techniques, et cetera. But it's just really most people don't need to focus on a, on a technique. They just need to swim and, and improve that oxygen ability to use the oxygen for the demand on the body that is that is so demanding that is swimming wow yes i still feel a bit cheated being skinny though if i was honest <laughs> i mean if you want me to to help that then yeah a bit of bit of body fat definitely helps especially when you're open water swimming and the temperature because you're using you know you're not having to generate heat as well as everything else you're trying to do so uh yeah you know when you're in the water for a long time a bit of body fat massively helps are you familiar, thank you, are you familiar, Brendan, with this Raynard syndrome? Is that anything you've ever Yes. Yeah, yeah, lots. So this, yeah, lots is, this is my sob story part two. I've got about 25 parts. Um, but when I went up for this last Torbay triathlon, I just did the sprint this time, so the half distance. Um, when I went up to get my ticket or my num race number the, the evening before or the afternoon before, yeah, went for a swim with my lad and we were only in 20 minutes and we had wetsuits on only a shorty but it was a five mil wetsuit 
Right. And within 20 minutes, I was shivering so bad. And when I came out, I, my half my fingers had gone white. Yeah. You could see the blood in the bottoms, the, the top of it. And it took me all the way back, you know, the 40 minute drive back home with a heater on in, in, in the car. To, and what, what, what can you tell me about that? What do we know? Well, it's, I mean, it's sucking, it's basically your body in total panic mode and sucking the blood, the warmth of your blood to your core, because it's all about keeping your core safe. So it forgets about your digits and your toes. And that can be incredibly painful. Brain arts can be incredibly painful. That recuperation can be incredibly painful. What can be done? There's lots of different, you know, different theories on it. Getting, building the body up to a temperature deficit like that is really helpful over the course of a winter. But some people are much more susceptible than others. Sometimes it can hit you and be a bit of a shock to the system if you suddenly not really acclimatized to the conditions going in and perhaps because you're wearing a five mil wetsuit you thought I don't necessarily I'm just going to crack straight into it um so body preparation is hugely important but I mean I've got friends that literally it really prohibits them going in the water really from now until next June because it's too painful for them um but you know there's lots of modern equipment that can be used gloves hats etc that can really help with that at the same time the trouble is, though, so I, I spent 500 quid on a wetsuit, one of these own <laughs> three, three jobs, you know, the latest yeah. one. They, and I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm good to get. I didn't really. I mean, it's like one mil on the arms or something. Right. Yeah. And so I read the triathlon rules the night before and I was shocked to find I wasn't allowed to wear. No, I don't think I'd have worn booties anyway, because it probably slow you down too much but you're not allowed to wear booties you're not allowed to wear gloves but you could wear a hood that's right so in competition you get you're more than welcome to wear a hood under your cap but again triathlon suits for some people are just too thin depending on what the conditions are um, and what the temperature of the water is and uh, you know britain mainly it's under the average uh, you know it's under 16 degrees which is then classed as cold water so um <laughs> you know for some people that can be a real issue uh and it it horses for courses different bodies the the physiology of it but also the psychology of it um i mean you you're down in plymouth and i often find that people who live near the beaches are in the water through the course of the winter and they don't necessarily have the same issues that people who learn to do a triathlon from london let's say let's be really generalistic there and then come down um, so they're used to swimming in the pools. They're used to swimming in, in some of the open waters in London. And the Thames can actually be quite warm in the summer. And then suddenly they come down to 14 degrees on the Cornish coast. And that can be a real shock. Yes. Is there a thicker triathlon wet wetsuit? I mean, because I thought I, it said five mil and you think, oh, wow, that's, you know, that's about as thick as you want to sort of go. But then, of course, you forget to factor in that it tapers off to three and then it tapers to almost it's not even wetsuit material on, on your lower arms it's like this spandex kind of stuff yeah but yeah, it all depends on the wetsuits and the brand um you know for for triathlon suits it can go down three two one so one mil on arms and legs or crease aspects of the west wetsuit um and you can get winter equivalents of that that you can go up to five mil on chest plates etc for extra buoyancy as well because don't forget the thicker the suit, the more 
Uh, horizontally, you're going to be in the water, which can be, you know, really bad for some people's swim strokes. So it's just, again, just trying those different suits. And, and some people I found actually move away from the, the, the quality of a triathlon suit and actually go to a, a surf suit or a different type of suit just because they've got still the three mil or two mil on their arms. So again, it's, it's one of those things that's really hard to try and do because most things are online now and you, you, know, you can't go and try these things on, which is a nightmare because they should be tried on. Yeah, I got myself a really great suit. I think it was from China, and it's got the fur inside, the fur, the fleecy yeah. insides, which which traps traps a bit of air and water, whatever it might be. And um, oh my god, talk about like a bad fit. It it was my <laughs> size, but the it was like the bum was huge. <laughs> yeah, really didn't you know show my hips off very well. Um, <laughs> No, so they're not the most flattering of things anyway, but yeah, that's the, that's the thing that's obviously people's move, uh, moving online, but that's a classic example of you've got to try it on because we're all different shapes and sizes. And that's why often, you know, different suits I've got, I stick with those suits just because they suit my body shape and others are ridiculous and don't at all. So how did your water journey start then? Let's, let's, how did you get into swimming and uh, I mean, way back, way back, I lived on the farm with a river and spent the whole time building watercraft and swimming in the river. That's what I did. You know, that's that was my spare time with mates, with my family or whatever. So um, I was stead from there. And then at 16, I became a kayak instructor and worked in a, um, a centre and, and sailing instructor. So that's what I did through my A-levels. Then became a, um, uh, did outdoor education and PE as a teacher through university and just carried that through really. Um, you know, I was, I mean, that was back in the early nineties, we were doing the open water swims across uh, to the breakwater in Plymouth, for example, because I actually studied in Plymouth. And, um, you know, we were doing that back then, but, you know, for those events, there'd be 10 or 12 people that would turn up for. I mean, those type of things now, you know, you get three or 400 people turn up for. Um, so I've just always been in the water and then, you know, this thing came along and loved the surf zone, loved the surf zone, both for swimming and for surfing and kayak surfing and, you know, anything in the surf zone, you know, floats my boat massively. So when um, SUP came along, uh, that was just like fantastic, another tool. And I've, had, I've got a bit of a body that's been smashed by life and rugby. So the pop-up in surfing just became that little bit more lethargic and... It just meant actually on a sap, uh, I was going into bigger waves and, and enjoying bigger surf because the, the type of the kit allowed that to happen. So a sup is a what stand up paddleboard? Yes. So yeah, stand up paddleboard of which you know you can surf, you can and obviously what I do at the minute is mainly expedition paddling, which is going off for, for days on end, weeks on end, months on end, and, and venturing in different places on a tool that can get you there. You're high up in the water. Um, and for me, you know, it's not the most uh, economic as far as efficiency is concerned because a kayak will always be better in conditions. But the visibility that stand-up paddleboard gives you the flexibility, it gives you to be able to surf as well as go for long jaunts um, is, is phenomenal. And I love it. I love stand-up paddleboard. And it's, uh, it, you know, it, and it's taken off massively in this country. It really has. Yes. What, what, why do you think that is? I think for those reasons, really, it's incredibly accessible for anybody to get on the water, which is a brilliant thing. 
you know, it, it comes, it inflatable comes in a bag. You know, you, you haven't got to have a garage to sort in, you haven't got to have roof racks to put it on. You get to the beach, you, you know, you endure having to pump it up, but then you, the family, et cetera, can, can venture out on it. It's, it, it means water is access, accessible in a way that lugging a kayak around or a little dinghy or any of those sort of things don't necessarily allow. Um, I mean, that's the great thing. The bad thing is, as we've seen this year and, and all the years that we've had SUP, is people who haven't got the skills or the knowledge think they can venture out past 50 metres in the sea or venture out onto that lake. And, and you know, tragically, this year, we've seen some, some horrible uh, drownings as a result. Whoa. How, how do people drown, if that's not a stupid question? What, what's, what, what, what are they doing? So, you know, the two vital things when you're on a stand-up paddleboard is obviously to have a buoyancy aid if you fall in and a leash to keep you attached to this huge thing that can float. Um, you'd be amazed at how many people don't have leashes. So you fall off, the board shoots off. Boards are incredibly susceptible to any sort of breeze. And most boards with a breeze will travel faster than someone can swim. So suddenly your, your flotation device has disappeared. If you haven't got a buoyancy aid, it's amazing how many people you know, go on these hot summer days, they've, they've pumped up so they're really hot, they go out, they fall in, and then obviously cold water shock, really susceptible to that. You know, and, and it, at any of these points, panic then leads to people making the wrong decision. So this year alone, there were situations where people were blown offshore on, on their stand-up paddleboards. Uh, they haven't got the skill, ability to be able to paddle it against anything more than about five mile an hour of wind, which at the coast isn't that much. So they, because they start to panic, they're going further and further out to sea, they make irrational decisions. So they jump off their paddleboard and think, do you know what, I'm gonna swim in because I can swim in two, 300 meters, I'm sure I can. So they leave the safety of this massive inflatable that people can see them on and start swimming. And then they suddenly realize after 50 meters that they haven't got the swimmability that they might have had when they were 13. They panic even further and then, and then the tragedy strikes. Awful. Yeah, really awful. And it happens too many times this year, last year. And this is why one of the main reasons of doing the challenge I did was to highlight this, to say, you know, what a wonderful tool stand-up paddleboarders is. You can paddle around the whole of Britain doing it. But if you have the skills and if you know what you're doing, because if you don't, tragedy can happen. Yes. I was surfing at Trajanan Bay with um, three German lads. And for the first time ever, I'd heard about rip, rip, rip currents, but yeah. I'd never experienced one. And it's that thing that when, when you're in one and you've never, you, you, you just, you forget everything. You don't know what's happening to you. So we're, yeah. trying, we're trying to paddle in and I'm looking at this bench that was on the headland. And, the, and as fast as we're paddling, the bench is moving away from us. I, so we're going back out. Yeah. And of course, everything you're taught is don't try to paddle against, a, you know, go, go across, get out of it. Yeah. And um, it, it was, it was awful, Brendan, you know, it was, I mean, because the I mean, guy, the shock. well, the, the guy shock behind yeah, yeah, the guy behind huge. me was going, Chris, I can't paddle anymore. I can't paddle it. What I, I was fe fearing for my life, literally. And I I didn't know what to do. I mean, I, I just I'm like, just keep keep go keep going. And 
fortunately, my friend Dan, who I, I don't, he had a different, he was in a different headspace. He just turned around, went back for the guy. And the next thing I looked over, they just made their way over to the rocks and they were getting out and, and it was, it was just like, oh yeah, of course. So we all just turned around and got out on the rocks. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't too much, you know, the waves weren't smashing on the rocks or anything, but it's just a little lesson like that is so, it's the difference between life and death, isn't it? It really is. And I mean, you summed it up there beautifully in that for that moment that you were trapped in that rip, all common sense went out the window. And it's that natural instinct to fight it and go inshore, try and get back to the shore. So you're fighting against the power of nature, you know, and the rips aren't, aren't a monster of the sea that want to pull you down. They're a total natural occurrence happen on every beach where there is a ripple coming in above knee height, because all it is is the water coming in and wanting to get back out again. So, you know, it's totally natural. And, you know, I use rips all the time because I look for the rip, I jump on on my board and it takes me out. You know, it's not going to take me to France or free ride to gym, you know, to America. It's, it only goes out as far as the breaking waves. So, you know, most beaches that's 50 to hundred meters max, um, but it's a panic zone. And that's why, you know, 30,000 rip rescues in this country alone will have happened on a normal year. I don't know what's happened this year, um, you know, and people also think that rips happen in Australia or America. They don't think they happen in Britain, but because it's this natural occurrence of water, just wanting to get about, it happens on every single beach. So it's just, I mean, and we do a lot of training with juniors to get them to understand if you're in a rip, just don't panic. You either just go with the flow, especially if you've got a board, you just go with it. Because as I say, it's not going to take you very far. Or if you haven't, you just step, try and do that swim sideways, but not panic when you are still going out, but swimming sideways. You know, it, you know I take juniors to Bantham because the rip there is a strong one because of the river that's exiting at the same point where the water flows out. And just chuck them in to get them used to that experience of helplessness because it's helplessness. So there's nothing you can do against it. Um, just getting used to it, what you do, how you help others, what to say to others. And it's such an important skill, but it's not rocket science. It really isn't. Yeah, it's an irony, isn't it? The surfers love the the the, the rip currents because you don't have to fight your way out the back. <laughs> it exactly just take, takes you takes you all the way out, and then when you're ready, you just you hop off it and you're you're ready to catch a wave. Yes. Have you have you rescued anybody yourself? I'm I'm. I'm yeah, I'm yeah, um, yeah. Through the years, I mean, I set up. Tor Bay Surf Lifesaving Club 10 years ago this month, actually, because I was just fed up in the bay of what seemed about not just a lack of knowledge, but the most basics, you know, even knowing that the tide goes in or out, that the water in the sea gets deeper, you know, these most, what I would consider the most basic things people didn't know and were getting into trouble for. So I set up the Surf Lifesaving Club to try and get as much knowledge in the bay out there as possible, training lifeguards, and we did three seasons of lifeguarding in Torbay, um, where as you can imagine, every and everything that could have gone wrong for people did, and we had to step in. Um, and really up to the point about five years ago, uh, it was actually 2014, so what's that? That's almost six, seven years ago. Um, I was off duty, North Cornwall, three souls, tried to, I dragged them in, 
all three died. Um, they've been out there for too long in conditions that potentially they shouldn't have been out in. And at that point, that's when I set the charity up because I thought, well, I need to be doing more to help a nation which thinks they've got more knowledge, maritime knowledge than they actually have. Um, and that's what it's all stemmed from for me. And that's the reason why I then did the long paddle to circumnavigate Britain on a set was because I was getting to a point where not everybody was willing to listen to my message. And then you do a crazy thing like step around Britain and everybody wants to speak to you. So suddenly we're, we're really putting that message out there. And you know what? You don't even have to tell people the, the, the ins and outs of the water safety message. You just need to tell them that when they go to water, they need to think. They not, need to not be so confident. They need to think about what they're doing. Have they got the right equipment? Have they got the right ability? Are they at the right beach for their skill level? You know, what are they trying to do? Are their kids safe? You know, get them to think because most people turn up at a beach with their kids and their all their equipment and off you go. And, you know, that's that's the tragedy of drowning. Everything is going beautifully until it goes wrong. Um, what, yeah, so that's where we're at. What had happened to these three people? Were they swimmers? Uh, they were surfers. So they were surfers who had come down, weren't uh, local surfers. And uh, in, I mean, 10, 10 foot swell, 10 foot swell at Morgan Porth creates a huge amount of froth. Throth you can't swim in, throth you can't paddle in. You know, you've got two, three foot of throth, there's nothing you can do in that. And, and, and Morgan Porth creates a lot of froth because the way it rebounds when the, when the swell's coming from a certain direction. So the whole side of the one side of the beach was a no-go for anyone who kind of knew what they were doing, really. I was at the other end of the beach thinking, am I going to venture out into this and smash myself up? Because it was, it was a big swell, but I was keen. Um, and suddenly a lady came running across saying, we've lost uh, family members, can you help? So, you know, it's a case of thinking what I can do without any equipment to try and get out there and drag one body in, then I went out and found another one, dragged another one in, and then they're on the beach and they've been in the water, so they were un unconscious. You know, they've been in the water for I don't know how long because I, I wasn't there at the beginning of the scene. And you're trying to conduct CPR on these souls, uh, emergency services, you know, of which there was helicopters, Coast Guard, lifeguard, everybody came, but it was too late for these three, unfortunately. So, and for me, the tragedy of that was, of course, the draining but they were people who had all their families on the beach with them. And I mean all their families, like all their children, brothers and sisters, aunties, uncles, grandparents, wives. You know, when you see the tragedy that draining is, you know, you've experienced it, you know, firsthand. You know, you're often having the best of times because you're with your family, you're on holiday or you're going to the beach or it's all good until that moment it goes wrong. And when it goes wrong, it can go wrong in a second and there's nothing anybody can do about it. If you haven't got the skills, you're not prepared for it. And that was the situation there, you know, and to see that family devastated by this, this loss was, for me, a massive motivation to see what, what can I do? And I actually gave up teaching after teaching for 25 years um, to solely focus on this water safety message in our country. Brendan, how, if the conditions were that bad, um, all this frothy white water, how, how were you able to cope with that on three rescues, that, that sounds- yeah, it was, it was, yeah, massively difficult. I mean, thankfully, I found the first uh, body in the throth relatively quickly. Um, and, and we were taking him in, other people then came to grab him. Were you on and your then, board? No, no, I wasn't on my board because 
the, the issue with my board is way too small to get any purchase with a rescue. Um, so I was trying to stay in my depth because like I say, those conditions, you know, you, 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 I'm not going to put myself at risk in, in such a situation, especially where you're not an on duty lifeguard. So you haven't been watching the situation. I mean, watching the conditions. So it, now I was, I was 500 meters away the other side of the beach. So I literally sprinted to this, this point to try and help. Thankfully, I got hands on another the lady um, relatively quickly and managed to drag her in. Couldn't find the other soul, a gentleman, um, and then was you know was shocked that there were must have been thirty or forty people on the beach surrounding me. The only person who knew how to do CPR. So I'm instructing somebody else. This is how you do CPR on a body whilst I'm doing CPR on another one. Now I'm not saying that could have helped you know at all, but you know, there's two things, water safety in this country and basic life support as humans. I think we should all be taught and understand basic life support because you never know when the person next to you might just keel over and, and you could save their life. Gosh, yes. And of course, in the, the surfers who serve the big waves, there's a bit of kind of debate, isn't there, about they've got these kind of life rescue jackets they wear now. So when they get smashed right under, they can yank the cord, inflate it. Yeah, and that's a life-saving tool, yeah. life-saving tool in that situation. But the um, the debate is, is that it tempts people who don't have the skills to 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 battle these. I mean, some of these, when you go to Jaws or somewhere, they're monsters, aren't they? These huge... Well, I, I mean, I hear people talking about big waves and, you know, you just, a proper six-foot wave in Cornwall is well beyond most people you know a proper six foot wave most people call a two or three foot a six foot wave you know a proper six foot wave will smash most people if you don't know what you're doing so then if you go to 12 24 30 foot that you know jewels or something can be on a on a on a day you know this is on another scale before you even go to nazare and see 100 foot waves um yeah there's there's levels here um and you know andrew cotton who's one of our biggest and best big wave surfers you know he's proved that you know breaking his back three years ago because of the weight of the wave smashing down on him you know but he's still based back out there doing it again now and proving that it can be done but at the same aspect highlighting water safety at every turn so you know really important and let's talk about your big paddle then so do you by chance know jordan wiley yeah yeah no jordan yeah yeah no so jordan well so he made I've it. just written the forward for his book, his new book that's out next week, I think. Oh, cracking effort. Yeah. He's a good lad. So he, so for friends at home, he was on this programme, wasn't it? What Wanted, is it called Wanted or Hunt, Hunted? Yeah, Hunted, Hunted he does. He's, he's filming that now as we speak, actually. Yeah. He's also former army and he set out to paddle all the way around Great Britain. I'm guessing what with like a safety, uh, uh, you know, a support boat. He, he went with the support boat. Yeah. And got all the way around and didn't have much left to do. And then, of course, this what I call the nonsense hit us and they refused to let him continue in Scotland. Too, too difficult to continue. Um, I've had yeah, this. I mean, yeah, yeah, Jordan. Yeah, yeah, he had two things against him, which was. One, he chose to do it in the winter, which is just crazy, especially from a non-paddler's perspective, but that shows the grit of the man. And uh, then obviously he hit COVID right at the point where actually you couldn't 
his support boat vessel wasn't allowed to come in and out to get supplies or anything like that because of the restrictions of COVID. So he had to had to curtail his mission. Gosh, that's yes. And I think Jordan's made hasn't hidden the fact that he's he has to balance his mental health quite quite carefully. And that would have been a I mean any as, as, as you know, Brennan, any big event you do, you, there, there is a bit of a come down afterwards. You know, you, you've been on this adrenaline high for so long and then you can crash. And to think that 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 he put so much effort into it. Absolutely. And then the Absolutely. plug was pulled for, for reasons out of his control. Gosh. So, yes. Oh, so, I mean, when I set when I set off. Well, I, when I was planning my attempt, it was all about whatever Jordan gets, obviously beating whatever he's, he gets. That was my mission. Um, but, of course, it changed from that when he stopped at Chris, just before Christmas to being the first person to do it. You know, I, was, I chose to do it slightly different because I love the surf zone. I thought, well, for me, it, it's more meaningful that I start on a beach, I paddle, and I come in on a beach so there's no boat support. Um, and I think that really shows the nature of what a SUP's all about and how it can be done. Um, you know, there are different complexities to doing it that way to, from doing it from a boat, for example. And, and that was my choice of doing it. So obviously when Jordan um, couldn't finish his, it just left it open for me. And I've said many a time that, you know, Jordan, even though he wasn't a paddler, um, was a bit of a pathfinder for, for attempting that because he, he did... He did a lot of it. He didn't finish the Land's End of John O'Groaks, which is a shame. He literally finished 30K from, from John O'Groaks. Um, was that so what he set out to do? I thought he was going to go all the way He was trying to do the whole thing, trying to do the whole thing. But yeah. one of the world firsts along the way would have been from Land's End to John O'Groaks um, via the coast. And he yeah. was 30K from doing that. Um, so I obviously came along and then took all those aspects and... Sadly, <laughs> for him as well, also took his record for the because he did achieve the world's longest SUP journey by the coast. Um, but yeah, I took that off him, which which I, I can joke with him there about. Um, but you know, he's 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 yeah, you've said about his, the mental health issues, but you know, he's a strong character and he's already planning all sorts for next year and what he's doing. So, you know, I'm supreme and his book coming out next month, Nick next, yeah, next week it is for November. Um, will be a big boost, uh, and I'm sure many, many people will enjoy that that book. And uh, yeah, like I said, I've, I've written the forward for it, so I'm I'm super keen um, for to him highlight. You know what an amazing adventure he is. Well, we'll we'll put a link for the book below this podcast. And so your attempt, where did you start and where did you finish? I mean, uh, started from my yeah hometown of, of Torquay. So I mean, the, the objective is really simple. Really, I started in Torquay. I turned right at Brixham and I kept turning right until 141 days later, 8 million paddle strokes and about 4,000 kilometres later, I turned right and came back into Tall Bay. Blimey. And when you hit these beaches at the end of what, each day, did you go through the night or is that too dangerous? Yeah, no, we lots of paddling at night. Um, you know, up in Scotland, especially when we were in Scotland in June time, it doesn't really get dark between 12 and 3.34 in the morning. So you've got a lot more paddling hours you can do. But, you know, quite often I'd be paddling one, two hours into the dark before I came in. I mean, some places you just can't paddle in the dark. It's too dangerous. Um, 
you know, surfing in, in in the dark in a beach you don't know, you know, is up there with with danger and what yeah. can go wrong. So you have to be careful with all that. And and what support crew did you have? So I had two amazing guys in vans uh, that basically travelled around Britain um, in these vans, uh, and we had a la- van life basically for for four and a half five months. Um, so Will and Harry. One was in charge of photography and just making sure eyes on me whenever he could. And the other one was all about, so Harry then was all about getting to the next place, setting up our van, getting the food on, ready for, for whenever I came in. So, you know, that team on the ground and then uh, Zoe and Lucy back at base, just fielding all the conversations, questions and, and emails, etc. was a great team. And without that team, you know, you can't do something like this. So what kind of mileage were you doing a day, Brendan, and, or, or kilometerage? And also, did you, did you use the tides to your favour? Or... Yeah, so, so a standard panel board is no better than a cork. If you threw a cork in the ocean, it's totally susceptible to, to the tides and the weather, which is the wind. Um, I have to do that, use that all the time, you know. Yeah, I found it entertaining that um, the government said this year we had no wind, so they couldn't create uh, you know, the implications of the gas and all that sort of stuff. Trust me, we had a lot of wind on our coast this year, a lot of wind, and most of it was against the prevailing conditions. So the prevailing conditions to go around Britain is to go clockwise around, and that gets the benefit from longer tides and the winds. Um, you know, we, we I had 23 days where I just couldn't go on the water, because mainly because... I had 30, 40, 50 mile an hour winds in my face. And on a paddleboard, you just can't get anywhere um, doing that. So, you know, I, I, I had days, my biggest days were 80K, my smallest days were 2K. Um, and I had days where on the north, uh, northeast coast of Britain, sorry, northwest coast of Britain, um, the Blackpool area, huge promenades. You know, we'd go on for 20 miles promenades. And I'd start in the morning and I'd start paddling and, and, a, and a gentleman would walk past with his dog because they can go a lot faster than me when the wind's against me. So they kind of point and laugh as they walk along the promenade. And then that same man, about 10 hours later, was walking back. And I'd only done about 6K in that whole 10 hours. You know, he'd gone to work. He was walking his dog again. And I was still paddling. And he was like, what are you doing? You know, you, you fool. Um, Cause obviously not everyone realizes that I'm trying to paddle around Britain. So they think, what is this guy trying to do, trying to achieve? Is he gone mad? Um, but made me smile and chuckle when that, when those sort of things happen. So silly question time. If the wind's really against you, can you sit down and paddle? Does that help? Yeah, you can. I mean, there were times when I not even sit down, you're crouched, crouched right down with your head forward, trying to lower your profile as much as possible. And there were many, you know, situations where I'm, I'm miles out to sea and conditions change. And, you know, that's the only way you can get any form of headway at all, because you are unfortunate. The further out of the water you are, the more of a sailor you become. Um, and, you know, that's fantastic when you've got the wind anywhere on your back region. Really not good when you've got it in your front. And what did you do for comms? So I had everything you can imagine. Two phones on two different networks. Because actually, phone communication on our coastline is exceptionally good. You know, there's 5G on most of our coastline, which is amazing. Um, even up in Scotland, you know, it's really good. 
So two network phones, a VHF radio, um, I had a satellite and a GPS tracker, both which had the ability to communicate through buttons on. So yeah, fully covered in every aspect there, um, which is beyond essential because you just need that constantly. You know, the, the radio comms I had coming in on beaches where, you know, you know what it's like when you when you come in on a beach you've never seen before and all you can see is crashing waves. It's really hard to know, you know where I'm coming in. So, um, you know, on a 14 foot board, you've got to get it right. You get it wrong and that board is folded and you're, you're, you're all over the place. So, you know, the ability to have lifeguard communications where they're actually signaling to me as well on the beach um, was paramount. How did you speak to the lifeguard? Was that pre-planned or something? Yeah, so I, I would speak. Uh, my my all my radios are um, have the the, um, the secret lifeguard channels. They're basically kept just for lifeguards. Um, there are there's a number of channels that are kept just frequencies, just kept for that. And I've got all the radios for that, so I can communicate with them all. Um, Did you and have some great comms? Great comms with the lifeguards, with the with boats with the Coast Guard, um, you know, because they really brought into what I was doing around the country. So, yeah, it's a big part of what you're trying to do when you're out on the water. And I'm guessing you you took, obviously you had to take snacks out for the day. What 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 did, what was your sort of diet? Yeah, John, I'm really proud of that because I had four and a half, five months, no injuries, um, no issues. And a lot of it comes down to good sleep. You know, I've got that ability just to sleep anywhere, which really helps. Um, and good food, making sure you're taking in the right stuff. I mean, on the board, it's more about quick eats um, that you can have good impact. So lots of nuts, lots of chocolate, lots of oats, lots of flapjacky type stuff. Um, and if you want an absolute power hit, then it's French fancies. Do you know what French fancies are? Those little tiny cakes. Yes, yes, vaguely. There's about four and a half bags of sugar in each French fancy. So you take one of those and you're, you're, you're firing. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh. And so that was a world record first, or, you know, world record. You've got other records, though, right? Were they all related to this trip? Yeah, so, I mean, this, this paddle um, basically gave the fastest circumnavigation of Wales the first and fastest in Scotland, first land centre John Groats by the coast, the first circumnavigation of Britain, and the, long, the world's longest ever set journey, um, which beat a great lady um, who, it took her three years to actually get it from Guinness, um, and she got it, and I've literally just broken it. So um, it would probably take three years for Guinness to approve my one. So as I said what, to her, you know. What, what was her record? Hers, 2,600 kilometres. Oh, the, the longest paddle. Previous. Oh. Yeah, the longest ever world paddle. So, um, yeah, you know, to hit it at about, it's about 4,000 kilometres is, um, yeah, it's, it's going somewhere. I think it'll take some beating, but hopefully someone will sometime. So is somebody going to paddle across the Atlantic then, do you think? Well, the, the, I mean, someone, Chris, um, Chris uh, Herbert actually has done that. But because, you know, going across the Atlantic, if you know uh, what Atlantic row is look like, mm. it's actually one of those, but with the deck lowered so you can stand and paddle. So it's not classed as a stand-up paddleboard. So he's done it, um, but I can't get a record for it because it doesn't stand as a paddleboard because it's got a cabin, um, whereas a paddleboard is an open um, board of 14 foot 
Um, so yeah, could you do that on a, on a normal board? I think it would be tricky. I think it'd be tricky, but never say never for anybody who's, who's willing to, to risk it. I mean, you can cross it in 30 days. So it's just whether you can, you can endure the open conditions for that long. Yeah. And, and take enough food, I suppose, or. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Brendan, it's been an absolutely fascinating chat, mate. Thank you so much. Um, what can we do then for people listening? Because it's an incredibly popular. So you don't, you, you never go to the beach now and not see somebody out there on a, on a paddleboard. It's, it's really popular. What can we advise people then who are thinking of taking up? How, how can they get into it? Can they get lessons? Obviously. All those things. So, so anybody taking up, um, stand up paddleboarding, it's got a new paddleboard. Please, please, please get yourself a proper lesson. Um, 30, 40 quid will get you a lesson, kind of factor that into the budget of buying a board, really. Um, at very least, really the first time, go out with someone who is experienced. But even someone who's experienced won't have the ability to teach you, you know, in, a, in an hour and a half slot, not just about paddling ability and how to paddle safely, but also conditions and how to combat conditions, wind and tide for coastal or, or wind on lakes and rivers, you know, flow is an important thing to understand. Um, check out our website, thelongpaddle.co.uk. Um, lots of bits on there. You can see about what I've done and, and especially moving forward with a water safety mind for standard paddleboarding, but also uh, open water swimming and anything really that gets people out there. You know, I'm, I'm the, one of the biggest supporters of mindfulness and what actually being on the sea can, can help you for. As a middle-aged man, the benefits are huge. Really want to promote it, really want to push it, but at the same aspect, it's got to be done safe. Brilliant. And we'll put all your links below the, the, the video so people can find you. Brendan, massive thank you. I hope because we're near each other, we can do something at some stage in the in the future. Maybe well, you stay in contact, my friend. Definitely. Yeah, you make it could maybe give me my introduction to, to paddling. Definitely. Definitely. I've got yeah. plenty of boards. Come on up to Torbay on a nice day and I'll, I'll take you out, my friend. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, let's let's do that. So massive thank you again, Brendan. But everybody at home, thanks for watching. Big love to you all. Please look after yourselves. If you could like and subscribe and share, that would be brilliant. And uh, I hope this is a, a, the start of a new adventure for many of you. And we'll see you next time. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username Chris Thrall. Instagram Chris Thrall. Thank you.